Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, tech freaks. It's time for you to just relax and get comfortable. Drop your guard because you're amongst good friends. Let's get our nerd on together and lean into another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I don't mind saying it, this is your safe space to geek out and get a head start into a brighter future. Led by our torchbearer, Matthew Dickerson, and here he is with all the good oil. How are you, Matt? Well, torchbearer, it's interesting you bring that up. The World Cup of Soccer Mm. has been obviously a topic of conversation over the last month or a couple of months around Australia. Obviously, the Matildas did very well. Yes. Just missing out on a bronze medal. And of course, being in Australia and New Zealand, then we were seeing games sometimes live, but it was all the focus around. It was amazing Australia. to see what support it had gathered. It was yeah. just, yeah, it was, incredible. it was impossible not to get caught up in the flurry. It was. And I've never been a huge soccer fan. I've still got to say soccer. I don't want to say football because <laughs> that applies to so <laughs> many codes in Australia. People, I can hear people switching off. <laughs> that's so just right, be that's careful. It. <laughs> okay. But one of the things that I've found intriguing, and my kids played soccer, so I used to be down there on the sidelines and helping out occasionally and that type of thing. But the good old offside rule was always mm. interesting, and it just seemed like the touch judge, if they maybe just got it right or maybe just didn't get it right sometimes, there's always a bit of argument whether they were running onto the ball or not. And so it was always very nuanced. Yeah. But I do like technology being used. So it's been quite fascinating watching some offside calls and then the referee calls for the nice little pretty lines that go across the entire field in yeah. the virtual environment. And I just think that's all pretty cool how far we've come and in I've got that, that. that CGI and you can see them, their arm has just waved into the offside zone there. and uh, It'll teach the players to keep their arms in <laughs> nice and tight, won't it, when they're running onto the ball? Yeah. But I actually like that and even with the goal whether or not the ball has actually gone over the line and you know, doing those judgments on the goals themselves so I think that's all good I still don't understand why they just can't stop the clock when there's a stop in play the injury time frustrates oh, me still right, okay. surely every other sport manages to stop the clock and then yeah. it seems to be when it hits the time that's the end of that particular half yeah. or the end of the game soccer it seems like Oh, randomly, it seems like a few stoppages will just add on an extra five, six minutes, and then maybe at the end of five, six minutes, the referee says, that'll do, but oh, it's a bit of a Yeah, more. well, the referee's got the whistle to blow at the end. Yeah. There's nothing else than, other than the uh, referee's whistle. Going back to the VAR, though, I'm, I'm a, uh, I like, as a coach and as a parent, I always talk about playing the whistle. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever the referee blows, sometimes it'll go for you, sometimes it'll go against you, sometimes you'll think it's fair, sometimes you'll think it's unfair, but just play the whistle. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm I'm a bit one of one for the glory days of old where we didn't have interfering computers telling us <laughs> um, what <laughs> what actually happened. You just went with the linesman's call or you went with the referee's call and Sometimes it goes in your favour and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, There's I, too much at stake these days, too much money, too much. I think much. that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So I get that that raw simplicity of it, swings and roundabouts, it's all okay. But you're right, there are players who earn a lot of money. There are people who are betting on these games, yeah. legally, legitimately betting on these games. And so they want to make sure it's the right call. Mm. If they see a wrong call and that decides a match and that was that, $10 they put on the game or whatever it might be. So you're right, there are so many things riding on it now. Yeah. and so oh, It slows the game down enormously, though. It does. Yeah, uh, if, if for a game that could end up in a, a nil-all draw, I don't know, that's frustrating <laughs> for some people. Um, but, if, um, yeah, you just want the ball to keep rolling. Uh, and that VAR stuff just slows it down. Everyone sits and waits and... 
in anticipation. Well, I like the referee marching over to the screen to have a look at the screen. Yeah. The, the referees in this, mainly me, march on over and on a mission to go and have a look yeah. at that screen and see the, the ruling there, which is a bit different to, say, rugby league where they just send it to the bunker and the bunker gives the ruling on it. But you're right, it does slow it down, but it's getting technology to get the right decisions, which yeah. I think a lot of it is born from the fact that you'd see a TV game and the referee would make a call on the field, as you say, just the raw, that's what I saw, that's what I call, end of story, no more arguments. And the people who are watching at home go, what, how could the referee get that so wrong? Mm. So you can see very yeah. quickly a, a problem sitting at home. So surely that should be As soon as they right. introduced the action replay, that's that was right. it for the referees. <laughs> um, and it was almost a done deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is amazing also to see the, the CGI come in where mm. they're able to recreate the whole situation and erase all the other distracting information so it becomes enormously clear, yes, that wrist was offside. (laughs) Close enough to real time as well. So the technology is there. I suppose the other problem is that that's fine for a World Cup match, but when our kids are playing under 10s or under 12s, you haven't got the same technology and you can imagine the kids there going, oh, that was a bad call. Bring VRA in, please, Dad. Well, not quite down here. happening here. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Okay, cruise fans, we've got some big news for you today. The world's largest electric ship is all set to sail and it looks like the blueprint is good enough to make a whole fleet. This might be a good time to find yourself a job as a shipbuilder as a boom is on its way and Australia is leading the way in manufacturing. Matt, battery-powered, bloody big boats with Made in Oz stamped on the hull, no less. Surely we'll have the triangle there, made in Australia on there. We'd have to, wouldn't we? I would love to see them being used in Australia. This particular one is being built by INCAT, a company down in Tasmania, and they specialise in aluminium hulls, which is important in this particular situation. But this particular one that's going to be made will carry 2,100 passengers, 226 vehicles, so not too bad. Is it meant for the open ocean or is this a, a river cruise boat? Uh, this one's actually going to be, it's, it'll be used between at Argentina and Uruguay. Oh, okay. And there's two ports there. I don't actually know the names of those ports, but it's, I suppose, an inlet from the South Atlantic Ocean, yeah, so right, not okay. out in the open seas, but an inlet from there. And I think between those two ports, it's a regular ferry run, is 45, 50 kilometres sort of range. Mm, right, okay. So, and that's the sweet spot there because this particular one at the moment, 130 metres long, so I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but 40 megawatt hour battery. Now, to give right. you, or to give the listeners an idea, I'm sure you know, but cars, for example, EVs have got anywhere from most popular on 70 to maybe up to 100 kilowatt hours of battery. So this is 40, 50 times larger, but... It's a bigger boat too. It's mm. not a little car-sized boat. It's a big boat, 130 metres long and longer than most cars. So the range of this is about 60 to 70 kilometres range, total range of it. You'll do about 46 kilometres an hour, so it's a reasonable sort of speed. Yeah. But that's the real sweet spot at the moment are those short trips. So you can just imagine you load up on one side, you put your passengers and your cars on. That takes a bit of time. You go across the, say, 50 kilometres. You... Pull in and plug in to charge up straight away. Now, 40 megawatt hours is not going to take five minutes to put some no, charge in there. That's going to have some serious charging happening. But it probably takes a bit of time to get 226 vehicles off. 2,100 passengers, they probably get off quicker than the vehicles. So that takes a bit of time. All that time while it's doing that, it can be charging up, ready to go back across. And I think that's where we'll see a lot of action in terms of these. And I'm thinking, say, Sydney, Sydney Harbour, the ferries that go across, 
the harbour from Circular Quay, say across to Manly. Yeah. I mean, they're only fairly short trips back and forth all day. That would be where I would see electric boats being absolutely perfect. The boat industry or the, the ship industry is still contributing a lot to carbon emissions across the world. And I think we'll still see the boats on the open waters, the boats that are carrying cargoes, containers, etc. There's still a bit of a problem there in getting some other alternative. It might be hydrogen before it's electric. Yeah. When you're taking, talking those long trips, that's still a problem. But you can still start in the shorter ones. That's it. It's a start. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll see where this takes us. That's right. So it's aluminium, I mentioned before. That's instead of steel. So that's good. That means it's going to be lighter. The diesel engine you'd normally have in a ferry like this are heavy. The electric motors, not so much. So that's a weight saving. You'd normally have some fuel tanks full of diesel. That obviously weighs something. Remove that, but the batteries obviously Mm. weigh a bit. 40 megawatt hours of battery storage weighs a bit. So overall, this boat is heavier than an equivalent ferry that was driven by diesel. But with those weight savings of the aluminium of the actual motors themselves, there are some savings there. Again, not enough to completely offset the batteries, but it's not a terrible situation. It's not as if, well, this is going to have to be built so differently Mm. because of all that extra weight of the battery. So, look, I think it's happening, happening slowly. There's another version they've got of a similar boat that will have a range of about 185 kilometres. So, again, for some of those longer trips, I'd love the fact that it's being built in Tasmania to see the spirit of Tasmania doing that trip. But I think, what are you talking about there, 400 kilometres? Is that the distance? Good question. I don't know that off the top of my head. Across the Bass Strait, but it's it's longer than the 50 kilometres anyway that's going to happen in this particular one. So not yet, but wouldn't that be fantastic to see a Tasmanian shipbuilding company building ships to be used in Australia? We did see, and we've talked about uh, in the past, the the new boats that are coming out with big electric sails. Um, Yeah, that's true too. So adding that with some electric propulsion, maybe there's some potential there. Lots of things are happening in this. One thing that I think is pleasing, people aren't really sure. I call it the new economy. I don't know if that's a, a general term, but all of the things around renewables, around electric or electrification of everything really, I just call it, that's the new economy going forward. Mm. If you're not on the new economy, then you're going to be left way behind. Yeah. INCAT, the shipbuilding company in particular, said they're going to double, they've got 400 staff at the moment, they're going to double that because they believe there is so much activity that's going to happen around electric vessels. So that's a pleasing sign as well. Yeah, that's right. All part of that new economy. Watch this space. Glassmaking is an ancient art dating well back to 1700 BC, I believe. So consider that for almost four millennia, people have been developing glass products. So squeezing something new from this ancient material would have to be a tough challenge to say the very least. Well, for a bunch of Pennsylvania State University researchers, the challenge has been accepted and the world now has lion glass. Thank you very much. Matt, this is a super form of an ancient product for so many reasons. So what's your research say? Where do you think the first glass was actually made? I'm interested. Oh, geez, it was um, in the Middle East, and I wanted to say, was it Sumeria or Babylon or somewhere like that? Yeah, right. And wouldn't it have been fascinating to be the first one to come up with this solid material yeah. that you could see through? And what you a could concept. make art from. So glass blowing followed very, very quickly after the first glass was made. And it is fascinating to watch people even now do glass blowing, but imagine back then trying yeah. it getting a bit too close maybe and your lips, you can tell the glass blowers <laughs> by the guys with big lips. <laughs> but this is actually quite fascinating. The initial focus for this glass was to reduce carbon emissions. So they're trying to create something because there's 86 million tonnes 
of carbon emissions from glass that's made annually. And that's, so there's a fair sort of a scope. They're not going to reduce it to zero, but they can bring it down something. They can bring it down, that's right. And that was the first part from the Penn State researchers was said, how can we reduce the carbon emissions? What can we do to reduce it? Well, there's carbon in the batch materials you're using, but also you've got to get it pretty hot. And normally mm. to get things pretty hot, you need to be burning something like coal maybe to get it pretty hot. So they found that this particular glass, they could use less carbon in it, but also the temperature to melt it is about 300 to 400 degrees Celsius lower than normal glass. So that's good, less energy consumption yeah, needed there. Significant, yeah. So that makes a difference. But then as often happens when you're experimenting, trying different things, they worked out they could produce this glass with less energy, but then they found it was about 10 times more crack-resistant than standard uh, um, soda-lime silicate glass, so normal glass that we would use. So that's exciting for windscreens or for mobile phones, for example. Won't be long we'll be asking ourselves, why haven't we been doing this forever? (laughs) That's right. And this is the sort of thing that happens, isn't it? You try and address one problem and you might actually address another problem along the way, which is very exciting. So what the general feel is that you'll be able to make products lighter and thinner with this glass because it's better in terms of its crack resistance. Mm. And again, you think about glass on a vehicle. Glass on a house doesn't matter that much that it's not lighter. But when we're trying to make cars lighter because we're using batteries to drive them around, you're looking at all different ways you can save that weight in a car now. So that sounds pretty exciting. Or you could leave it the same thickness and just have it stronger glass, and Mm. that sounds okay as well. What if mobile phones are going to go crazy for this stuff? Oh, they absolutely will. Although maybe there's a bit of a good market there for mobile phone manufacturers oh, to yeah, have right, crack to glass. have crack glass, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would never it's be so cynical, James. Never, <laughs> never would I say that. Right, say anymore. But this is a, a pretty exciting one. Now, at the moment, it's obviously very early. They've applied for a, a patent on this, so I can't tell you the exact composition of this new glass because they're keeping it under wraps until they get their patent approved because they don't want someone else stealing wow. the patent and staying to manufacture it. But if things go to plan, they'll get that patent and then – I don't know whether they'll try and manufacture it all themselves. I imagine being a university, they'll say, we've got this patent and you can use this glass mm. in this methodology for all your other glass manufacturers out there and just pay us some sort of royalty for every square metre of glass that you produce, maybe. I'm not sure. But it's exciting and it's exciting to see what's happening across the world out of solving one problem, what other problems can be solved. Video doorbells have been a revelation in home security and their popularity has skyrocketed in recent years. Matt, these front porch spies have become popular for a reason, but is it all good news? Well, it's mostly good news, but there's a few privacy issues there. The sales are definitely going up. I've only got sales figures for the full year of 2021. 11.7 million were sold across the world in 2021. That was an increase of 63% from the previous year. I can only imagine, but again, I don't have the data, I'm sorry, that it would have gone up again in 2022. Mm. One of the ways that people are using them is for the porch pirates. Yeah, though you get a package <laughs> delivered to you, yep. and then someone sees it, oh, there's a lovely shiny new box sitting on someone's doorstep. Yeah, I wonder what's in there. I have no idea, yeah. but I'll take it, and I'll take it home, and then I'll see if I want it or not. They're not really targeting. That makes targeting. Me cranky. Yeah, it is very, very disappointing. But people are being caught with that, which mm. is fantastic. Well done. And again, you've got people like London's Metropolitan Police. They've said that they've used video doorbell footage to solve crimes. You've got incidents of doorbell footage used to convict murderers murderers and manslaughter cases. I was looking at that little note there. Yeah, Yeah. that's amazing. And it's not necessarily about 
the place that the doorbell is on. So, for example, sir, there was an incident that occurred across the road this week. Did you see anything? Oh, no, I can't remember seeing Oh, wait up. Can we check your video doorbell? Can we check your video doorbell? That's right. So, oh, look, it happened to pick up someone coming along there and they had an axe and they went into that place and it came out with blood on it. We might just go and talk to that particular person. (laughs) So I think that's all good, obviously. One of the things I found interesting was that there was some information from the Los Angeles Police Department. They said they saw a 50% reduction in crime with video doorbells, but I just didn't have enough context around that. 50% reduction in crime, what, just at that person's yeah. place that had it on? <laughs> or all yeah, the houses right. that had it on? I, I don't know what the context was, but they were obviously very happy with it. That's an interesting stat to come up with and to put chalk up to a particular piece of technology. Yeah, that's right. So that sounds good. Maybe they were being paid some money to market. I'm getting very cynical today. <laughs> market by some of the doorbell manufacturers. So the, the most popular one, of course, is Ring, which is uh, owned by Amazon now. So they're, they're the number one. Google's Nest is a popular one as well. So they're names that people are probably familiar with. But the other one is that there's been some judges that have said that some of these companies, the Amazons, the Googles of the world, surprisingly or not, have broken data protection laws by providing evidence from the doorbells that's stored in the cloud to the authorities without the owner of the house giving permission to do that. Ah. So they've got the footage. Oh, sure, you're the police. Well, share that footage with you, which sounds lovely, but you probably should tell the owner of the house, the owner of the doorbell, in fact, that that's happening. So that's where some people have got some concerns. There is other data, and I use the word data very loosely there, other research that shows that having a video doorbell isn't actually reducing crime that much. But again, is it just the house that it's on? I just don't know the context of that. So it's hard Mm. to say whether it's doing something effective or not. I love the idea that you can be anywhere and someone rings your doorbell and you say, yep, sure, I'll be home in a minute or leave it on the front porch and hopefully no one else steals it or... Go away, I don't want to talk to you. The first time I got caught by a video doorbell, and I say caught, I was I was actually there for legitimate reasons, just dropping a package <laughs> off, of, of course. But um, yeah, the person was talking to me from um, their holiday destination, yep. and it was kind of a little bit weird and freaky. I mean, I've talked <laughs> on the telephone to people before in long distances, but um, yeah, this was a bit weird to be just dropping something off and having this conversation. I was actually I was dropping it off and then turned my back and was walking away, and they sung out to me. And like, hey, come back. <laughs> come back, Robert. Oh, no, it's you, James. We know you. So anyway, it's interesting. I'm actually a bit of a fan of them, of different types of doorbells. I think there's a bit more to happen in integration yet. We're getting Mm. more and more smart home technology, internet of things, but I just don't see that the doorbells are at the point yet where they're fully integrated to our smart home. And that's happening. There's companies that are trying that, but you kind of want someone to be the winner so you know that this is the way that all these different products (laughs) will go rather than having a piecemeal approach. But it's interesting. hear about so often here in Australia these days, but around the world, across the summer, children dying in hot cars is unfortunately not rare enough. In the US alone, 40 children die each year, which is about three or four per week during those hot summer months. For sleep-deprived parents, accidentally leaving a child in the back seat is a mistake that they'll never get over. So surely, Matt, in 2023, there has to be a tech solution to save parents from the unthinkable. I actually read one of the stories from one of the people who had lost their son in this, and it's a terrible story. And you just imagine, well, I can't imagine, actually, the grief that parent would feel. Mm. In this particular case, the, the gentleman was stressed about a big audit that he had on. Mm. His wife said, can you drop off our son? Sure thing. Drop him off to childcare. Sure thing. 
He sat in the seat, in the car seat, directly behind the driver's seat. He was focused on the audit on the way to work, where he would normally drop off the child was on the way to work. Yeah. Got to work, jumped out, went in, met with the auditor. He actually said, I went out and had lunch with the auditor. Yeah. Came back in after lunch and then it dawned on me that I didn't remember a conversation that I had with the babysitter. Oh. I went, wow, did I? Anyway, went out to the car and unfortunately his son had passed away. Now he's an advocate for some of this technology now, yeah. so he's, he's using that horrific experience for some good. Wow. But there have been other examples where people, just the grief they felt, it's ended their marriage. There have been yeah. examples where people have committed suicide because of what's happened And sleep depri- uh, deprivation is a real thing um, for parents, particularly new parents. And, um, yeah, you just don't think straight. It's so easy to make simple mistakes. So and, and we live in live busy lives right now. And there's, yeah. Everyone's got a list of things that they're doing every day. Yep. Um, so how easy, when you're distracted, um, to just forget something that would be routine. Yeah. And it's interesting, when I look back through history – there have been lots of times when we've had some technological advances and they've created other problems. So we've had to have other advances to try and help that. If I go back as far as steam engines, so they transformed transportation. But then there were boiler explosions. Mm. So we had to come up with a safety valve or other ways to control those boiler pressures. So we had this one great solution, but then it caused other problems. Of course, even population growing, when you look back through the 6th century BCE, when you look at Rome's population growing tens of thousands, well, of course, then sanitation was a big issue and people were dying or getting very sick through dysentery and cholera. But of course, they came up with the cloaca maxima, the great sewer. And uh, again, we we know how great the Romans were at engineering and the the great sewer was really a lot of modern sanitation is based on exactly what they did back then. But cars... I mean, cars are fantastic, but the World Health Organization says 1.35 million people die each year Mm. from accidents, from car accidents. And the figure you had was from the US across the world. There's approximately 1,500 young children die in cars. Goodness me. So that is scary. But there is technology, and some of these advocates, that gentleman I mentioned before, are really pushing for this to be compulsory. Seatbelts are compulsory in cars now. You don't go and buy a car and say, I'll option up a seatbelt or I'll get a seatbelt on the luxury version of that, but on the base version, there's no seatbelt. That's the unfortunate position we have now with some of the technology, but the technology is getting better. I've seen some that are a simple reseat reminder. And basically, if you open the back door, close the back door, and then get in the car, when you stop your journey, it goes ding, ding, ding on the dash and says, check the back seat pretty basic and the number of things that pop up on your dash anyway you become a little bit immune to them that's right yeah you listen past them you You do you just deflect it it becomes part of your well your your non-consciousness that's right but there's some pretty cool technology out now that very few manufacturers are putting in their cars and that's where some of these advocates are saying it should be standard so for example you've got radio frequencies available in some models of cars that when you get out of the car it emits a, a very low frequency radio frequency that detects any movement and to the level of accuracy that it could detect a chest of a child oh, right. strapped into a car seat Sleeping moving up and down. Yeah, yeah right. that's right. If you had a dog, because it happens with dogs as well, I don't have the data for dogs, but there have obviously been incidents where dogs have died in a car as well, or pets in general. And so again, if you had a, a dog sitting down on the, the floor in the rear seat, it would detect that as well. Once you've got that, then you can start to do a few things. Once you start to implement that sort of technology, you can start to do a few things. So, for example, you can blow the horn, you can flash the lights, you can 
wind down the windows because obviously heat is a major problem. Mm. You could just open the doors, actually literally have doors come open. Now many cars, not all of them, have got the ability to, to send a message to a mobile phone. So mm. you could send a message to a mobile phone and say, there's movement in the backseat of your car. You want to go and check that. You could even get to the stage now where emergency services can be contacted. So you have an accident now, many cars automatically contact emergency services. Well, that would make sense in this scenario as well. But, sure. it's, but it's more that you want something immediate. You want something to happen so that people around can say, actually, that's horns blowing, the lights are flashing, and I can see a child in the back seat, and if the windows are down or the, the doors are open or unlocked at least, then someone could actually mm. take them out of there. Again, people might say, well, hold on, that might mean someone could kidnap my child. Well, I'd rather a kidnapped child than a child not being alive when I come back to the car. Yeah. Now, some people, of course, do say, I'm just ducking to the supermarket. I'll leave you here, Johnny, and I'll be back in a minute. But something can happen. They can get distracted. They could slip over and hurt their leg, and they get taken off to hospital. And next thing you know, sure. what, what about my child? So major automakers have committed that by 2025, all new vehicles, this is in the US at this stage, all new vehicles will have a basic backseat reminder. But as we said, that's probably not going to be enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So hopefully we will get that technology. And there's lots of technology. We've talked about it before. Lots of this technology could save lives, but it's still only on either newer or more expensive models. There really needs to be some process to say, once someone discovers some new way of saving lives, let's apply it to everyone. Because 1.35 million, that's a lot of people to it die It could even year. be one of those things that parents or prospective parents even consider when buying a car. Does it have that feature? Well, now that people know about it, know that those options are available, absolutely. And most people would think, well, I'm never going to do that. But, but yeah, let's yeah. have it in there anyway. Children of the 80s, did you ever go camping or caravanning? And because your family was super fancy, your folks had a little portable TV set that you could travel with. And the whole family and the other families at the caravan park could gather around and watch Hey Hey Ad Saturday on a screen the size of about a breakfast bowl, I reckon. No? Well, me neither. But I knew people who did. Those things were heavy, and even though the screen was tiny, they were still big and boxy, and that's just how it was. These days, everyone has a phone, which is a thousand times better, but with my failing eyesight, tiny screens are doing me no favours these days. Well, adventurers, there is good news all around now that LG has 27 inches of TV, especially designed for travelling, so it's happy camping from here on in, Matt. Surely those little TVs are mythical. I heard about them, James, but <laughs> I never actually saw someone using one. <laughs> I remember my brother telling me that he was at the cricket and he was watching the cricket like um, Larry Games was um, batting against the Australians. Right. Yeah, yeah, and he was watching on the telly while he was waiting to go into bat himself and I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. And they were mono screens, weren't they, on those? They were. It was a little black and white screen, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was a tiny little thing that no bigger than a saucer. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember the, the concept of them. I never saw one in the flesh. So yeah. Yeah, for anyone out there, I feel very jealous if you actually managed to see one. <laughs> but this is one of those things I'm convinced is because we can. LG said, what do you need out there? What's the next thing you need in TVs? We've talked about huge TVs in your lounge room, but this is a nice little suitcase that well, you'd probably almost get away with just taking it on 
an airplane with you. I reckon it just about fit through the does your bag fit in this little box container. Yeah, right. And then you just unroll a 27-inch go-anywhere TV. So it's a rolled up one, is it? No, no, it's oh, in a suitcase. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah, you, okay. you put the suitcase in the little thing. Sorry, go, my apologies. Yep, yeah, no, it fits in there. So I'm, I'm right to take it on. And then you can imagine everyone around you going, Oh, it looks pretty cool. Look at that, 27 inches. I'm not sure how they'd like it on the plane in terms of a safety aspect, but it's got a 1080p display, three hours on a single charge, four built-in speakers. Can I you mean, watch a Lord of the Rings movie on that? No, I think you probably can. I reckon you just about get away with that. It's just this whole concept. We need portable entertainment so badly these days that people are apparently prepared to carry around a 27-inch suitcase, <laughs> and I can't imagine it's light because the TV's probably fairly light, but enough battery power to run that for three hours, that's yeah. got to have a, a bit of weight, I would imagine, and they haven't pulled back on anything. I mean, it's got Dolby Vision, virtualized Dolby Atmos audio, so it's got all sorts of things on there. You can have all the cinema experience, just about but out of a suitcase. Yeah, that's it. Now, they also give you some ambient themes. So, for example, you could have an environmentally friendly fireplace. You just... Pop out your TV and have the fire running, just like a Tesla does. You can have a fireplace crackling yeah, so away so while there. you're camping, you can have the fire going <laughs> without right. adding any extra pollution to the air. And then using electricity to cook your, your sausages <laughs> or whatever it might be. There's also a beach scene, so if you go to the beach and it's raining and the kids are complaining, you say, well, let's roll up the TV here, wherever we are. Plonk and you can it up just on the window, and right. so you can look out the window at the beach that's... Um, that's happening all in uh, live surround sound. I'm not sure how much it would go off. They're about a thousand dollars US in by if you bought one in the US. I'm not sure where else they're available around the world at this stage, but definitely in the US. But it's got everything there, and it's portable. What more could you possibly <laughs> want? I just what I want to see. Maybe I'm asking too much here, but I want to be able to have something that's small enough that I can carry. Maybe even the size of the TVs you were talking about in yesteryear, but when you open it up, it gives you the full 85-inch experience. I mean, I suppose we've got that in projectors, haven't we? But yeah. that's all I want is something like that where it just gives you the, the Obi-Wan Kenobi experience in, in midair, just a, a hologram. <laughs> well, we had a social function just recently, uh, and it was an outdoor function, um, and then someone pointed out that um, the Matildas were playing um, <laughs> in the bronze medal match. And it suddenly occurred to me that there was no way that we couldn't watch it, so it became an indoor function all of a sudden. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so one of these 27-inch LG suitcase TVs would be great. Where was it? That's exactly what you needed then. So there's a perfect example where you need this. E-scooters are a bunch of fun, but it would appear that they're also a tool of the trade for the ne'er-do-wells and the vagrants of the world. In Melbourne, there's been an interesting countermeasure, though, to cut hooliganism on e-scooters, and Matt is here to tell us all about it. Melbournians have really jumped onto the e-scooter concept. When I was in there, oh, well, I can't remember, it must have been uh, at the start of the year. Yeah, e-scooters zipping around all over the place. Mm. They're good fun. Any cities you visit, they're just a good fun way to get around on those short trips. I, I really enjoy them. Five million rides they've logged in Melbourne since February 21 when they were first introduced down there. So yeah, right. that's not too bad. Yeah. But but they're an escape vehicle for naughty people. They are. And also a, a stunt machine. A stunt machine. Probably more to the point, you get people doing tandem riding. I see that all the time. Yeah. I do frown viciously at people that... I go past that aren't wearing their helmets. I mean, just such a simple yes. thing to do. Just put your helmet on, you idiot. But anyway, you see people not Score riding the helmets, riding on footpaths when they're not meant to, improper parking. So you go to get one where it should be. And of course, it's not there because it's parked somewhere else where it shouldn't be. Mm. So now, Lime, which is one of the 
manufacturers of e-scooters have got 25 they're rolling out in Melbourne with feedback from the local government there in Melbourne that they've got that they will shout at riders that are doing the wrong thing. <laughs> ah. So, for example, you go up on the footpath, they've got very accurate GPS detection on them. It'll start shouting at the rider to get off the footpath. I'm not sure if it adds, you idiot, but I, I think it would be nice <laughs> if it did add that. If you put two people on there, they detect the weight, and then it says, stop having two people on here, oh, going. That could be embarrassing. It just, would be as you're yes. going along. <laughs> and it's not just and yet, a gentle. And not two people on it is what I was getting at. Well, sorry, that would be that would be very bad. Hopefully it's clever enough to detect the number of feet, feet. on okay, there yeah, rather than right. just a weight thing. Uh, they've also got systems they're working on that'll do alcohol detection. And I actually think if they got that one right, that'd probably solve 90% of oh, the, yeah, other the other problems. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, so you've got things like that. But one of the things I do like about e-scooters is it's this whole thing that we're getting with all sorts of advances in technology, other things start to happen. So because the batteries are getting better, the electric motors are getting better, hmm. GPS systems, smartphones, the apps on those, you combine all that, People didn't think, let's put all that together to come up with an e-scooter. But now that we've got all those things, an e-scooter. E that's right. We can have an e-scooter. We could have had it 10 years ago. <laughs> Couldn't have had it 20 years ago. But now we can have them. But you've got idiots out there. So it's, it's interesting. I did actually talk to one e-scooter company one day as well about the fact that some people throw them in a river. So mm. obviously... That's the thing to do, isn't it? There's an e-scooter, there's a river. When you finish with it, yeah. <laughs> throw it in there. Maybe not even when you finish with it. But they've <laughs> actually got some pretty cool things to try and detect the person because they've got cameras on them as well where they mm -hmm. can pick up people that have touched it, that have used it. So if they see that it's being picked up, they can start to action or trigger a camera to start to film who's actually got it there. And then when they throw them in the river, a lot of them now are floating so that they can actually be picked up or they'll sink but they know exactly where they are sinking, so they can go and scrape them out pretty easily, and they're all yeah, waterproof. Right. So there's lots of things they're doing, knowing the behaviour of some of their riders. This is just the next thing. I actually think if this works, and it does deter some hooligan behaviour, is the term that's been used in Melbourne, if it deters some hooligan behaviour, then I think we'll see lots of scooters like this around the world that says, hey, it worked down there in Melbourne, let's apply this concept everywhere. I'm just uh, waiting for the smart Alec to be riding around on the footpath with this thing yelling at him. And just continuing on with this thing yelling at him. Not caring. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a badge of honour. Look at this thing, it's yelling at me. I must be doing the wrong thing. They get more and more aggressive. I don't know, folks, but it feels a bit like we're transitioning out of the age of information and into the age of AI, and it's happening quickly. I think we all know, and some of us are more than a little bit worried, about the potential of AI, but one thing is for certain, industries across the world are engaging with it, and the demand for AI specialists has stepped up enormously in the past six months. Matt, in the US, there's a lot of money to be made on those, uh, for those on the inside of AI. Surprise, surprise, surprise. We keep talking about the fact that you might lose jobs with AI, but not a lot of people are talking about the jobs that will be created around AI. AI. Exactly right, because someone's got to be doing some part of it, you would think. And it was interesting because my son, who's studying computer science at the moment, he actually did an AI subject in one of the courses. He didn't, he didn't actually find it that interesting and that exciting. So that's great. Just keep doing what you think you, you want to do, follow your passion. But I might give him an update with some of the salaries that they're paying in uh, AI jobs, AI industries at the moment in the US. Yeah, right. He might rethink how exciting or how boring <laughs> that, that particular subject was. But you've got everyone doing it. So Walmart in the US, Procter & Gamble, Goldman Sachs, they're advertising AI jobs 
from, and these are US dollars, 110000 to $250,000 a year. So that nice new graduate coming out of uni with some AI courses under their belt, yeah, that's not too bad of money. Quite lucrative. It's not bad. Yeah, that's right. If you've got some machine learning concepts that you understand, so it's not pure AI, but it's machine learning, so it's along that same level, you might be talking 130 to 150 grand. When you've got, for example, Netflix, they've got a product manager position advertised at the moment for someone that's got some management experience and AI skills. The package there is $900,000. Oh, wow. So you're starting to talk about some serious money that obviously there is some severe competition there in terms of these particular positions and not enough people to fill them. Accenture has said that they plan to hire a 1,000 AI employees in the next year and their salaries go up to about $340,000. So there are some jobs there and this, this whole demand about AI, what they can do with AI, how can we take advantage of AI, I think some of the people in the boardrooms are saying, we've got to be onto it. We don't know enough about it. We don't know how our industry will change. Let's get some experts in here mm. and show us how we can take advantage of that. And I think that's why they're doing that. And again, the demand is high and there's not a lot of long-term experience, I suppose, for AI people out there at the moment. So it might be just a bandwagon to jump on. <laughs> it might be. And how? who knows how long it'll go for before AI takes over the AI jobs themselves. But at the moment, why not get all over it for 900 grand a year? I think that seems like a reasonable amount of money to be paid to have some fun with AI. Certainly some good pocket money there. Those little 16 square picture tests online they use to tell whether or not you're a human or prove that you're not a robot. Have you ever failed one of those tests? Does a tiny bit of the bumper bar of a bus just peeping into the corner of a picture count as a square with a bus in it? Who can tell? Well, apparently robots are better at those things than humans now. The test is a dud and Matt, I am done, I'm out, I'm heading to the bunker to eat baked beans and wait for the end of days. Well, it's funny when you talk about the little bit of the bus there. Sometimes when I do one of those well, capture tests... the traffic tests, light. Oh, the traffic light one, yeah, that's right. And you do one of those and then it comes up and says, do it again. And you think, so did I get it wrong the last yeah. time? Yeah. Or are you just being really, really secure on this one to really make sure I'm a human? You should just tell me I got it wrong. If I got it wrong, okay, then I'll learn that that wasn't a bus. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, but... So, I'm with you, but it's just that little bit peeping in the corner and you go, should I or shouldn't I? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. What, what would I do if this was a test that I was actually being marked on? If I was going to argue with the lecturer after, yeah, I'll go that way then. Just ask a robot, apparently. Uh, apparently, that's right. Now, one thing I did learn when I was doing the research for this story was what CAPTCHA stands for. When you see the CAPTCHA test, C-A-P-T-C-H-A, yeah. I actually never really thought about what that stands for. What it does stand for is completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. <laughs> Don't you just love that as an acronym? That that's someone, a wonderful acronym that now fails. That now fails, that's right. So they did some testing. They took a 1,000 people and they tested them on 10 capture tests each. And they found that the humans took around 9 to 15 seconds on average to answer the tests and you won't feel so bad about yourself now because the accuracy, humans were getting them about 50 to 84% right. Oh, wow. So <laughs> when that next bunch of squares turns up, then you go, okay, well, I'm along there with the other 50 to 84%. When they then said to a bot, I want to get into this website, go and have a look at this and answer the question 
and see how quick you can do it and how accurate, well, they took less than a second and they had 99.8% accuracy. Oh. <laughs> so 200 oh. of the world's most popular websites were looked at. 120 of those 200 used capture tests. And the whole idea is the web designers don't want bots coming along and scraping information off their website or yeah. filling in forms. Yeah. They don't want all these bots out there basically wasting resources, so they put the capture test in. Well, obviously... Capture's not working. That's not working anymore. And I have seen some sites that I've been to where I would have expected to see a capture test. You're filling in a form, something where you expect it to pop up. And it says, just by the way you're moving your mouse around and the way you're typing things in, we can detect whether you're a human or not. Now, that's interesting, but it wouldn't be that hard for a programmer to say, mm. what are you looking for? You're looking for uh, not a regular cadence of typing, for example. I'd imagine it would be one thing. Humans probably aren't going to type perfectly evenly with their cadence, mm. whereas a computer might. So you just tell the bot to alter the cadence or move the mouse around a bit randomly while it's trying to click on the right thing. So you could program those things in as well. So it's interesting, but you've got... Uh, I suppose Google, they've got some recapture tests as well where they're trying to work out different ways to do it. There's a whole range of things there. There's going to be a whole global effort invested in these type of captures. But what's next? I don't know. Can we just ask the people to stop playing with silly <laughs> bots? Is that is that good enough? I mean, I don't know. Anyone just... want to join me in the bunker? <laughs> yeah, Bring right. your own baked beans. <laughs> I don't want baked beans in the bunker because <laughs> they do things to what comes out the other end. So it might be a smelly bunker. given a review on an Amazon purchase? Do you want to know who reads those reviews? For perhaps the largest on online retailer in the world, there's got to be millions of them. But Matthew, who does read the reviews? AI, of course. Who else uh, would read those reviews? Uh, of course. I know my kids are, are very focused when they're buying something and I'll say, oh, you bought brand ABC. What did you buy that brand for? Oh, well, I read all the reviews and they were all very positive. Are you sure they were real reviews? Were they authentic mm. reviews? It's almost a bit daunting sometimes. You'll look at a product and it'll say there's 2,000 reviews. Oh, I'm not going to read through 2,000. And the first five, how do I know that this company is not sorting them by the most favorable reviews or the most number of stars given? How do I know I'm getting accurate information? Oh, I'll read a couple maybe and then just go with my gut. But Amazon understands those problems. Amazon mm. understands my problem. I don't have enough time to read them all. So they've now got an AI tool that will summarize customer reviews. So whatever product you're about to buy, you can look at that product and then you can say, give me the AI version of that, the AI version of the reviews, and it will try and get some reviews that have got a common theme and then condense them into basically one snapshot of the reviews and maybe a couple of little excerpts, a couple of little quotes from those reviews. So the idea there is that you can just look at those reviews in a condensed way get an idea, get a feel for that product, and then away you go. Now, I've got a couple of concerns in my cynical nature of today. I wonder, first of all, whether Amazon might lean a little bit more for products they might make more money out of. Mm. So if there are 10 products that are being constantly purchased through Amazon and there's reviews going up for those, do they say, well, let's give these ones here, we're summarising. Let's look for the more positive ones yes, for these ones. Summarise the positive ones. And that's right. And these ones over here, which we don't make as much money on, it's have slightly more negative reviews. Or do they then just do lots of positive reviews on lots of their products because they don't care which one you buy as long as you're buying through Amazon rather than another online retailer, mm. then that's still an advantage to them. 
I'm being a bit cynical. Hopefully, they're looking at those and AI is just being told to look at these in a fair and unbiased way, pick out the information you need to be able to deliver that to the end user to say, here you go. It's all about trying to make that online shopping experience better, isn't it? And yeah, this is that's right. one of those ways. So it is fascinating and much better than walking into a store and saying to a salesperson, oh, what's good out of these ones? Oh, I don't know, mate. You, know, you pick whatever you want. <laughs> or well, I haven't tried any of those. At least those reviews, if they're authentic. And that's the other thing they're saying is that they're only looking at verified customer reviews. Now, again, I'm not sure how they're verifying those, but presumably Amazon's got the data. Mm-hmm. They know that Billy Bloggs 757 has purchased that product Therefore, it's legitimate for him or her to review that product. And would they would they put up any negative reviews at all? I, mean, I just I just can't imagine the, any situation where they go, oh, yeah, these people are giving a one star, and here's the reason, and let's flash that up for you. Well, if Amazon don't care whether you buy product A or B, mm. they're probably happy to put up the negative reviews. Yeah, okay. But if they're trying to attract you to their platform over yeah. other platforms, they might just look at positive reviews. I'm sure we'll get a phone call from Mr. Bezos every anytime soon now and say, of course we don't adjust what happens there. It's all done honestly and with no bias whatsoever, so I'll wait for that phone call. But in the meantime, I suppose it's just another way to try and get the best products for whatever you're trying to shop for. Mm. And unfortunately, folks, that's your break time done right there. It's time to roll up your mat or return your chairs to the upright position or what have you and get back to work. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. Thanks for another cracking tech talk there, Matt. Well, unless someone's ringing the doorbell, of course, then you can go and see who's at the doorbell from wherever you are, it might be. Would that be at work are, or on holiday? Comf- comfort of your chair. Well, look, I have decided I'm going to start leaving reviews for Amazon products, perhaps even products that I haven't necessarily purchased. Um, if it's AI who's going to read them, well, that's got to be a license for mischief. Sending love letters and bawdy limericks and such, let it work out what it should be uh, posting and not. Um, a complete, complete waste of my own time for probably no reward whatsoever, but what the hell, let anarchy reign. Thanks for tuning in again today, folks. Uh, Tech Talk is brought to you by the good people at whichever platform you regularly access your good podcasts. I'm James Eddy, wishing you all the good vibes for the rest of the week. Until we meet again next time for another Mint Condition Tech Talk with Matthew Dickinson.